We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and we're talking about housing and financial wellness with Northwest Bank Mortgage Loan Officer Jonathan Graves and Northwest Bank Region President Rick Hamister. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having us. What does financial wellness mean, and what are some of the goals you associate with the term? Financial wellness is is making people comfortable with where their financial situation is. And that's whether they're saving for retirement, saving for college, saving for that first home. And one of the reasons that uh, that I wanted uh, John Graves to be here is because he's such an expert in the first home buyer's mortgage uh, situations. And Jonathan, we've had this conversation before. There's plenty of grants that are available uh, in the, the Western New York area that uh, really are are used to help people with down payment, with closing costs, uh, help you get into that first home. So at, at Northwest, we have our first front door program, which is a $5,000 grant that we offer that will be starting up in the spring, um, where it's a match program. We, we match your four to one on the dollar. So you're getting some, uh, some assistance from Northwest as well. But we can always couple that with the municipal grants that are out there, the City of Buffalo grants. Um, if you're looking in any of the suburbs, there's grants in Amherst and there's grants in Hamburg and Tonawanda. So there's there's a lot of assistance out there for first-time homebuyers. Low-down payment options, um, that, that's really what uh, pushes first-time homebuyers to that first home that they don't have to come to closing with a ton of money. Um, but every little bit helps. And as Rick was saying about financial wellness, you know that's where we always want to start is with education and financial wellness to get individuals into that dream home. If I'm looking to buy my first home and I walk into your office, what are you going to tell me off bat? I know nothing. First, we're going to talk about the big word credit, right? People either don't know where their credit stands or some people do know where their credit stands. There's a lot of there's a lot of tools out there nowadays, you know, the credit karmas and even on your own credit cards, you can check your own credit or monitor your own credit, which is very important. Um, that's always going to be the hot the hot topic word when you when you walk into any lender they're going to talk to you about your credit. They're going to talk to you about your credit, your income, and your savings. So, you know, you, you want to make sure that you are prepared. One way to do that is to uh, really take advantage of some of the home buyer education that's out there, whether it be from Belmont Neighborhood Housing or from anything that Northwest has to offer. There's plenty of areas around Western New York where you can find opportunities to to gain knowledge on what you actually need to do to buy a house. Now tell me about this collaboration you have with with Belmont Housing Resources for Western New York. Um, You guys are uh, on Jefferson Avenue. Why why the east side? Years ago when Northwest was acquiring the branches of First Niagara, 
had a meeting with the mayor, uh, Mayor Brown, and he he really wanted us to be in the east side. And we picked the the area of Jefferson because just like they talk about food deserts in certain places, there really was a banking desert. And we wanted to be the catalyst of something special in that neighborhood. And I think we really were. Uh, our branch opened in 2009. Uh, we also collaborated with Belmont Housing to put a full-service location uh Financial Education Center, and uh, that was really the start of a revitalization of that neighborhood. I mean, it's been a tragic situation in that neighborhood after the events of May 14th, but we'll be there. We were there before, and we will be there to, to continue to pick up uh, to try to help that community in a better financial position than they were. What's an, what's an easy way or quick first step for someone to begin to resolve or improve their financial situation? Is that, Jonathan, as you said, that, that big C word, credit? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, really, I think education. I think education is probably the number one uh, priority for anybody that's, you know, whether it's purchasing a home or just getting your uh, savings to where you need it to be um, or just financial wellness in general. So walking into a branch, walking to that Jefferson branch, you're going to meet some great people that we have at Northwest. Our branch manager, Rodney Rodriguez, is great over there. They'll put you I mean, where you need to be and in touch with who you need to talk to, whether that be somebody at Belmont or somebody at Northwest that can assist you. So education, for sure, is, is, is number one. And, and Thomas, nobody's situation is beyond hope. Everybody can get better and everybody can improve just understanding the fundamentals of the things that go into uh, into their own financial picture. And everybody's financial picture is just a little bit different. Yours is different than than Johnny's or mine. And uh, ev- everybody requires well, a little bit of help Well, that goes without saying. Everybody, hel- everybody requires a little bit of help You guys got suits on. Yes. Well, <laughs> I've got truck we, we were meeting an important guy, so we had to put a suit on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, circling back to that conversation with, with the mayor, I mean, was there anything else interesting that he said that, we, you know, we need we need this bank here but it was the, the why did he explain that well he and and he really uh and and i uh was a part of that meeting I, I came in a little bit later but uh from what i understand he said that that was the place uh that was most important to him that uh, that was a part of town that really needed uh some financial help and needed somebody local so that the the residents could uh, get easily get easy access to to a financial institution, and I will tell you, Thomas, uh, it's been remarkable to me how many checking accounts, new checking accounts that that branch opens every year. They're in the top ten for our entire Northwest Bank company uh, system wide in opening checking accounts every year. So there is that to me means that there is a real need for that in that community. And how does that help the community grow? Well, uh, it's really the, the first step in financial in financial wellness is just opening an account and putting money in and paying bills in a timely manner. That's and and I, I know you've got representatives from Belmont coming in in a little bit, but that's really the first step towards uh, towards financial wellness and and that I call it sleep at night, uh, the ability to sleep at night, knowing your bills are paid and knowing that you've got a budget. That you live live within, and that you put more money aside every day for those dreams, whether it's sending your kid to college, or uh, buying that first home, or fixing the home that you're in, you know, with repair repairing a home that you might be in. And uh, I know we've done a, a awful lot of uh, lending in uh, in and around the Jefferson Avenue branch uh, to to help fix up some of the housing stock that's been around there, and and that needed some 
repairs, especially through a snowstorm that we just saw that uh, has added even more pressure on some of these folks. But the ones that have been working with us, you know, they got a little nest egg. They've got, you know, with a loan and a grant, uh, they can really uh, fix things up well. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like it's a new day in that it, neighborhood. It is a new day in that neighborhood. I, at least I hope it is. Uh, they've been through an awful lot, uh, as the whole city has. And uh, I think we're, I, I really, you know, I hope and pray that we're really on the cusp of something special there. Now, you know, the as Rick was saying, the you know, that area needed partnership. And I think that's what, you know, this, that's what Northwest brought. That's what Belmont brings. That's what a lot of the residents in the, in the you know east buffalo have you know or need i guess is is that partnership and we are glad to be part of that and i think that it's only going to grow get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the wbfo daily email visit wbfo.org to sign up today our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and we are back talking housing and financial wellness with Belmont Housing Resources of Western New York financial coach Art Taggart and prospective homeowner Jack Eskridge. Thank you guys for being here. Oh, glad to be Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. So we were talking with Rick and Jonathan about, you know, being financially stable and financial wellness. From your point of view, uh, working uh, for Belmont Housing Resources, what does financial wellness, what does that mean? What, is that, what are the, some of the goals associated with it? Yeah, every, everyone knows about being physically fit, you know, physical physicality, being in shape, things like that. But a lot of people kind of put on the back burner financial wellness, being financially fit and sound. Because when you're financially fit and sound and stability, it gives you options, it gives you choices, right? So what we like to do at Belmont is we want to start from the bare bones basics, because everyone's at different levels, different stages. We want to look at your budget, see what your credit report looks like, see how you can improve it, establish credit or reestablish credit. And then if your goal is buying a car, getting a rental property, or buying a house, we want to get you there. Excellent. Now, talk to me about the partnership between Belmont and Northwest Bank. Yeah, Northwest Bank, They we are powered by Northwest Bank. The center I work at at 1140 Jefferson Avenue, it's called the Belmont Financial Education Center, powered by Northwest. So they collaborate with us. Great partnership. They're just a couple blocks down the street on Jefferson. So Belmont has been around since 1977 trying to provide safe and affordable housing to the Western New York and Erie County residents. So what we want to do is, say for example, someone's at Northwest and they're not quite yet able, able to get a mortgage. They'll refer them to us and we'll do financial education because we have classes online or in person. And again, just analyzing where are you at, how do you need to improve yourself to be able to uh, obtain that mortgage. And the, as you said, 
The Belmont Financial Ed Center is on Jefferson Avenue, you know, uh, just a few blocks away from, from the tops. It definitely mm-hmm. an, an important spot uh, in the city of Buffalo. I guess why why the east side? Why uh, why is that the place to, to, to plant the Belmont uh, flag and the, the northwest flag? Mm-hmm. Well, the east side of Buffalo pri- primarily – uh, it's a minority population base. So unfortunately, in, in the United States, there's a what's called a racial wealth gap. So the best way to uh, mend the fences, close that gap, is generational wealth. And a great way to establish, excuse me, establish generational wealth is by creating assets. And home ownership is a very powerful, large asset. Now, you can buy appliances and cars, but a home... That's going to last a long time. So by providing financial education up front to solidify the foundation for a family, because let, let me give you a quick analogy. Whatever your racial background, uh, religious preferences, sexual preference, whatever the case is, we all have three common things. We all need food, clothing, shelter. And all, the big talk now lately is mental health and tra- trauma effects and things like that. So a child moving from house to house, switching friends, switching school districts, we want to solidify that foundation for the family. So by helping the parent out, you're actually helping the child out too. So it's all about financial stability. And the east side of Buffalo, we serve all of Erie County, but predominantly the 208 and 14209 zip code that we're located in. We want to try to have the community within walking distance come through our doors anytime they want and try to help them out. So walk me through the process. I walk into the financial ed building looking for assistance. Then what? Then basically I'll, I'll you know try to build a rapport. Because to open up your financial history to someone without knowing them, it's like, I don't want to tell yeah, this scary. guy something. <laughs> <laughs> so you try to, you know, hey, have a seat, you know, take your coat off, relax. What can I do for you? And basically you want to be attentive listening. See what they want to accomplish. It's not about what I want for them. You know, I like the analogy, if I can't push you into a fire, if I can pull you out. So if I can let them know, I want to help you. I'm here to serve you. Whatever your needs are, if you want to establish credit, look at your budget, look at your credit report. Or if you just need to find rental housing, we can work on that. Then when the time is right, you can step, take a step forward for home ownership. And Jack, how how's this uh, how's the financial education center work for you? It worked great for me because here it is. Um, I had been looking for a house for the longest, and you know, a friend of mine she was she had just bought a home, and she was telling me about I should sign up with Belmont, and I said Belmont. She said, Yeah, you should go to Belmont, and she gave me Art's name. So I went over to Belmont, and when I went to talk to Belmont, just like he said, we built a rapport, we sat down, we talked, and just everything he just said, we went through, even the course of, you know, trying to own a home. And from that point on, ever since then, I ain't looked back. It's been great. And you, Did you have that initial anxiety when you walked through the doors? Like, oh, what am I getting myself into? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was only natural. So I walked in like, I mean, what am I, and now what, I mean, what if, everything was a what if question with myself. So within myself with the what if question, art pretty much excluded the what ifs. The what ifs became, okay, you can make it happen. So what ifs was no longer existent. So from that point on and moving forward, I've been trying to make it happen and we've been making it happen. It's been happening. Yeah, talk to me about this partnership between the two of you. I mean, that's that's you know, it's a, it's a seems like it's blossomed fairly quickly. Absolutely. I mean, because you got to figure here it is. When I walked in, it was more or less like I had been with this one financial group or whatever this one organization for the longest, 
And all it did was just spin me for almost seven years. I mean, they just kept spinning me and spinning me and spinning me till it came to a point where it put me in a position where I thought it would never happen, that it couldn't happen. And I'm saying to myself, I mean, it came to a point where my son and my daughter was like, pretty much probably thought I was lying. You know, and I was like, don't we're gonna get a house, don't worry, guess what? They told me this, they told me that, because they was always telling me something, that other organization that I was with. And they was always telling me something, always telling me something, always telling me something. So it got to a point where I didn't even want to have that conversation with my son and my daughter, simply because it more or less like it wasn't happening. So quite naturally, eventually, as they started getting older, they thought I was lying. Yeah, and you don't want to keep having those questions asked. Absolutely. And, and, Dad, and, when are we going to get the house? Dad, you said we was going to get the house. And the only thing I could say is, <laughs> don't worry, we got it. Don't worry, I got it. You know what? I got it. I got it. Until, you know, one day with that organization, I went in and, you know, because every time they ask me for the paperwork or ask me for, like I said, they checking your, your, uh, they're checking your uh, credit score and everything. I did everything I was supposed to do. Everything, and they would always pass me to the next person because he retired, pass me to the next person, pass me to the next person, and the one person they passed me to, it came to a point, and I'm just being honest, it came to a point where when I walked in the office with the one person, it was like, I told him, I said, listen, man, I've been with you almost four years now. I said, and it's nothing happened, and the guy told me, don't worry, don't worry. Just pick out a house. You'll be all right. Just pick out a house. Just pick out everything. I checked everything, credit score and everything. Just pick out a house. I went to pick out a house, and I tell the story the same way. I went to pick out a house, and my next appointment back to him, because you had to get the realtor and everything, pick out a house. I go back to him to notify him like I do with our, keep him updated on everything that's going on. The, the receptionist told me, she said, I'm sorry to tell you that, we have bad news for you. I said, what's wrong? She said, he had a nervous breakdown in the office, slammed his chair into the desk, and walked out. Oh, my God. You have to start all over again. Mm. Mind you, after four years. Right. Mind you. Right. What am I supposed to tell my son and my daughter? I walked into the grocery store one day. I'm in the store, and I see this girl. She was laughing. And she's laughing and everything. She's the happiest girl. Me, I'm always joking around laughing with people. And I said, why are you so happy? She told me, she said, because I just bought a house. And the only thing going through my mind is, you work here in a grocery store, right? And I work for the city and you bought a house before me? And I said, really? She said, yeah. I said, you bought a house? She said, yeah, you should go through Belmont. I said, Belmont? She said, yeah, you should go through Belmont. She reached in her pocket, grabbed her phone, and said, here, you should go through Belmont and ask to speak to our tagger. And that's how the story began. So now, when you talk to your kids, yeah. a lot more confidence? Oh, uh, When I talk to my son and my daughter now, as they're getting older, I said, listen, here it is. The best part about it is I done looked at a couple houses now, so they know I'm not lying. I done looked, and I even took them with me. To look at how, and they know I'm not lying. So, in that being said, it's either nah, not this one, Dad. Let's let's just hold on, wait for no, not this one, not this. So they know we're in process of making this happen. They know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, because right now with the weather and everything. So now you know that's just the only holdup, basically. Yeah, I'll, I'll say to Jack's credit, he already had knowledge and he had the motivation to buy a house, but since Belmont has the free educational 
uh, classes, be, be it in person or in Zoom. Jack took them all. He took the financial education class, the Am I Ready for Home Ownership class. He figured, yep, I'm ready, been ready. Then he took our two-part uh, advanced home buyer education class. We, with that class, you get a certificate because that's what the lender's going to ask for. Have you taken the HUD certified class? So Jack was like a steamroller. He said, I'm ready, I'm ready, let's do this. So it's always, I don't want to say easier, but it's, it's fun for me to help people that are really motivated. They already got their goals set. And, you know, the time frame established, and it's a wonderful thing. So if Jack did it, other people can do it. You know, everything that serves the Belmont is free. We're powered by Northwest. We're on Jefferson. We're here to serve the community. We can do taxes here and there, free taxes. But it's a beautiful thing um, that we're just glad to be on the east side helping out everybody. But, again, we help everyone in Erie County. So if someone like Jack, you want to buy a house, you can use our services, and it'll be a success story. This is Buffalo What's Next, our daily discussion on race, education, and more following the May 14th top shooting. Thomas O'Neill White here with Belmont Housing Resources Financial Coach Art Taggart and prospective homeowner Jack Eskridge. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, man. Pleasure. Thank you. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Garden Wisdom for Western New York and Southern Ontario. Learn the secrets to planning, cultivating, and nurturing your own extraordinary garden using time-proven solutions and sustainable methods. Garden Wisdom, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or on the WBFO app. Use the Talk to Us feature to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. We are talking about Black History Month today and how it's taught in the schools and why it should be taught in the schools and what value there is. Well, Garrett King is with us. He's director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University of Buffalo. He's somewhat of a national expert on the topic. We're glad to have you here, sir. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out with a, a clip. Dawn Askew is with EPIC, Every Person Influences Children. They're an organization here in Buffalo. They have a federal grant to do classes on strong black families. And she told me that part of her classes indeed include this black history component. So on this particular one, this person included for 10 black women in tech. After they assemble the board, they take it home and they keep it. And it reminds them of, you know, again, that pride of this is what I want my life to be so similar to um, a vision board. This is my treasure map of where I want to go. Is, is that what Black History Month is about, instilling racial pride? I'll answer that question by saying yes and no. The intent of Black History Month was to kind of expand our historical knowledge around black people's historical experiences. And imagery is really important, right? So Carter G. Woodson, who developed Negro History Week in 1926, understood that uh, we had to write, W and write, R, history because of the imagery of history and history books, right? Uh, if there's a 
concept around the black family that it's, you know, the stereotypes or that there's there's no men in homes or the single black women are raising kids yeah. and they're not doing a good job. All these stereotypes that are out there, those particular programs can enhance, right? A true um, history you know. can provide role models and destroy the false narrative. Yes. Yeah, so I would say that. But black history or history in general, general is not simply about you know, concepts of role models. Black history or history in general is all about identity and humanity, right? It's helping us understand the good, the bad, the indifferent and the ugly of human decision-making. Part of what I'm thinking is that not only does it provide the role models, but it provides education. Yes. If I understand your history, it's going to be a lot harder for me to look at you as something less than me because we have a commonality. It's about this concept of humanity. History is the first time that we learn about ourselves. And in many ways, black people in this country are always seen with no agency. They just can't be who they are. They have to. Concept of history is just if you just be like white people, <laughs> then you will be OK. Right. So we can't just be who we are. So in many ways, we're, we're, we're frozen within these concepts of being enslaved in in a philosophical sense. For whom is Black History Month a greater priority? Wow. Who's the audience? Yeah. Uh, does it help educate me? Does it help people of color? Yeah, it's both. So so I, I want, want to go back a little bit and just say the primary purpose for Black History Month when it was created was to be a space where we celebrate all the history that we learned throughout the year. It was never intended to be just one time a year that we teach black history, right? So the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History um, creates a theme each year, and, and this year's theme is resistance, right? So technically, you're supposed to teach about black resistance, and then February is is this sort of assessment of what we learned throughout the year. Uh, well, that, that connects to, to the earlier point you made, that black history is not just celebration, but it's pointing to the bad, the struggle. It's focused on, on the human condition. And part of the human condition would be kind of the oppressive parts, right? The bad parts. But then it also focuses on, you know, the joy and various different emotions and, and agency and, and identities and, and contention and all those particular concepts. Talk to me about what history is. Um, I, when I was growing up and I went to a very white suburban school district, there were the units on, gee, George Washington Carver invented peanut butter. There was a touch, obviously, on Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee Institute. But beyond that, there weren't a lot of real-life history stories. There were mm. these small little vignettes. Define history. You have a history. Mm -hmm. The person out on the street has a history. Oh, yeah, definitely. History... History is um, how we view the world and how we shape the world. How do you encourage teachers to include those kind of narratives? Because you're right, that's, that's different than the traditional open up a history book and read this happened. In education, we need to stop thinking about I'm teaching a curriculum, but I'm teaching citizens. Because when you teach citizens, now you have to think, what is the knowledge that these citizens need in order to push our democracy forward, right? To, to improve our democracy, to make our democracy more equitable. Is there a wrong way to teach it? Is, is the wrong just not including narratives? Or are there some things that you know are being taught out there 
that make you roll your eyes back in your head? <laughs> yeah, sometimes when um, sometimes not teaching it is the best best approach. For example, a few years ago there was this cross curricular connection between math and math and social studies. And all through uh, the country, like in New York City, uh, in the state of Georgia, the state of Virginia, they had these concepts called slavery math problems, right? For for example, in Georgia, I believe they had um, a slavery math problem that talked about Frederick Douglass. It was about him picking oranges or something like that. He right? picks five oranges a day. The then guy I'm, next to him picks two. Well, Do they have seven in their basket? Frederick got whooped five times in one week, how oh, many times would he get man. whooped in two weeks, right? So those are the types of like math problems that were, were there, despite the fact that Frederick Douglass is a complicated historical figure, you know, going through slavery, becoming free, being one of the uh, most sought after black men of the 19th century, right? But he was uh, singled down to a slave being uh, beat. And how or why would that be included in the math problem. The teachers attempted to be culturally relevant. The teachers attempted to be cross-curricular um, by combining math and social studies, particularly when social studies in many elementary schools are not taught, math, math is. So I tell my students to try to infuse social studies as much as they can throughout the school year, but they dehumanize the black people as they were trying to create those particular math problems. Dr. LaGarrette King is with us. He's the director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education. Talk to me about that title. Racial literacy is in the title of your organization. What does that mean? We're ignorant about um, the concept of race and racism, right? We have a certain view in our society about what racism or race is, right? So, for example, if someone says the N-word to, um, to a black person, someone can say, ah, that person may be racist, right? Um, but if, if someone systematically excludes a whole subject from a state curriculum, the word racism doesn't necessarily come into play, you know, for certain people. So it's about kind of understanding the vocabulary of race and what those particular uh, concepts mean. All right. I knew we'd get there eventually. When you talk about places that uh, exclude certain things from the curriculum, let's look at Florida. Mm -hmm. They rejected the proposal for advanced placement African studies courses. Uh, they say that there shouldn't be any teaching that says one race is inherently guilty of oppressing the other. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. You, you just recently found, and, and it wasn't really made public, the curriculum guide that got rejected in Florida. What's in there? Yeah, so, so um, I, I just received it this morning, so um, I ha haven't had a chance to really look through it. Um, but I can speak to what does rejecting African-American studies mean in many different ways, right? What it means essentially is that you're rejecting uh, people's humanity. You're rejecting people's ideas, right? You're dehumanizing people. You're saying that um, those particular perspectives are not needed. So then I question, well, how do how, how do black Floridians uh, feel about just rejecting themselves in various different ways? Part of what they're rejecting from the get-go is this idea of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Explain what that means to you 
Explain why it should be included. Well, first, I don't think CRT was really taught, right, in case yeah, of education, yeah. right? You know, w one of the things— The concept of what CRT is <laughs> right. and the label that's been put on it— right are different absolutely right, right um you know teachers were having a hard time teaching about race so a lot of things weren't, weren't weren't taught right there's there's they they believe in this concept of individual racism right if a teacher you know throws a racial appetite to a student they would say oh no that's bad that's bad but a teacher that believes that um you know their student didn't want to learn based on various different concepts or whatever is not necessarily um, um interrogated the same way right um but there is a concept, there is a portion of, of, of U.S. citizens that don't believe that racism exists, right? So I think that's where they're trying to go, is trying to focus on this concept that only individual racism is something that we should explore in our society. And sometimes I question about that. And, and Florida's objection is that, if I can paraphrase, mm -hmm. that a curriculum that automatically implies that a white person, regardless of their intent, is racist is bad. I think systems, and I think a lot of lot of people who believe that in terms of oh, it's just automatically saying white people, you know, racist. I think they understand that this world is inequitable, and in many ways, that's a, a them problem when they hear <laughs> they, when when they hear various different things, right? You know about that, um, but but it is really talking about systems and not people per se. Before the break, uh, let's look at the way Florida defines CRT. Did, did I summarize it correctly and contrast that to what you feel CRT actually is? Well, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, CRT has become this catch-all phrase. Um, but as someone who studied it and knows people that are well m more versed than I, right, on the uh, framework and the topic, yeah, they have definitely um, um, skewed with it and, 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 and kind of damaged it within a societal aspect. What do you know it to be? It comes out of legal arguments, doesn't it? Yeah, it came out of um, legal studies with Derek Bell um, being one of the um, you know top people to um, really explore it, and then you know other uh, law students at the time who just wanted to kind of take um, look at the law through racial lenses because they kind of understood that even when there were perceived successes, right, uh, for black people through legal means, there always had been some type of restrictions based on racial means, right? Um, so fast forward it to kind of CRT and education, and there's still kind of approach, right, trying to figure out, well, what are the um, racial concerns that we have within the education field, right? And we're looking at you know, concepts of systems. We're looking at counter stories. We're looking at, um, you know, uh, various different concepts of just how systems kind of restrict um, certain people from, from, from moving through society. So it is a way to, as you said, uh, look at it as something systemic and universal. I would say that racism is permanent. Racism is something that's not necessarily um, gone, you know, but I've, um, racism kind of changes depending on time, depending on ge uh, uh, geographical regions, um, depending on people, right? Um, it, it just reifies differently. That's interesting. Let's pick that up after the break. Dr. LeGarrette King is here. He's the director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at UB. Much more to come. 
This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And continuing our discussion with Dr. LeGarrett King from the University of Buffalo in their Department of Learning and Instruction. Before the break, you said something really interesting, that racism is not necessarily the same everywhere. Elaborate. Wow. So, so okay, when we're talking about black people, right, there's a distinct difference between racism and anti-blackness, right? Um, and CRT is a racial theory, not a blackness theory. Um, I'm, I'm not getting the difference. Okay. Go further for me. Yeah, so... So for racism, you know, we typically just think of everybody within the hue, right? So okay. people can be racist to, to various different um, other racialized identities. But what other particular aspects of anti-blackness or anti-black racism do black people experience that's a little different from other racialized people, right? So, you know, there's, there's other racialized groups that have racist beliefs against black people, oh, okay. right? You know what I'm saying? So so racism is more encompassing of all, you know, various different racialized groups, but it doesn't necessarily speak specifically to um, black people's racialized experiences. In the course of this program, I've heard people who have lived elsewhere say that Buffalo is kind of different, mm. that the racism here is far less overt. Would you agree? I would, right? And... And I'll be cautious because I know there's uh, people in the Buffalo community that that have more knowledge and experience in Buffalo since I've only been here for for a few months now. But when we think about where the majority of people in Buffalo stay versus other people and where they stay, that you can definitely make, uh, you know, a great argument about the concepts of, you know, uh, Buffalo's racism, right? Racism enters it, its its ugly head and um, kind of environmental disasters, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like 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 the blizzard we just had and job opportunities and home prices and values and the ways in which various different communities are, you know, treated. The Tops Massacre was just straight based on kind of a racist uh, laws over time, right, 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 doing all these particular things, right? So I, I, I don't want people to feel that, you know, the only way you could be racist is if someone is, you know, pointing their finger down at you and, yeah. and, and, and doing all that. Because even in the South, right, you know, I'm from the South, right, and it's not like that, right? You know, it's not people calling you N words and people kicking you off the, you know, block. Particularly when, when, when I grew up in the eighties and nineties down there, it wasn't that. It was, huh? All the black people lived 
on the other side of the train tracks. Okay. And the other side of Main live, Street. Right, right, right. <laughs> they live over here. They live over there. So, so I don't want people to think that the South is totally different from the North in terms of, of, of um, you know, the way in which we're treated racially. But, but yeah, yeah. But back to your premise then, the idea that racism is different depending on where you are. Yeah. So my wife um, went through this, right, being um, originally from the Caribbean, born born in London. Uh, every time we have moved, right, her racialized identity has changed from the communities that we live, right? So mm. when she lived in New York City, everybody thought she was Puerto Rican, right? When she moved to Georgia, everyone said, oh, yeah, she's a black American. When we lived in Texas, then all of a sudden, she was Mexicano, right? You know, you know, just people coming in there speaking Spanish. They're like, I don't know Spanish, right? You know, so you have that particular meaning. In the Caribbean, people that as dark skinned as me could be considered white. Really? Right, yeah. Uh, Henry Louis Gates has this um, wonderful PBS special called Blacks in Latin America. And it's, it's, it's fascinating how they characterize various different, you know, concepts of race. But I would say this, though, right? Because of the political climate in various different different spaces. In my experience, New York State doesn't have that continuous, oppressive, systemic aspect on black folks. Our laws are progressive, at least, you're saying. More progressive than certain places. In that regard, let's talk a little bit about requirements with the New York State Education Department. In New York State, must schools teach black history? I think they have a law that says all schools should teach black history. I believe it's the Amistad Commission. I am not 100% sure um, about the accountability. I don't think that's being being done properly yet. What are the best practices that you are aware of around here? Are some schools and some districts really knocking it out of the park? Well, I think um, Buffalo Public Schools has a uh, curriculum called the Emancipation uh, Curriculum. I think think is really good. I know... Um, Dr. Fatima Morell, and sh- she does a wonderful job in, um, you know, approaching these particular topics. I'm just recently starting to work with several different school districts around the area that that would like to improve and, um, you know, enhance their Black History curriculum. So, so that's very positive because I see a lot of a lot of school districts, you know, reaching out to to the center and reaching out to me to say, hey, how can we improve or how can we create more Black History? So that's very uh, um, promising. And in a general sense. What do you tell them? Uh, just do it? Well, no. We have a process, right? So a, a process that, um, you know, sets up various different committees um, to begin to start talking about, well, what's the best approach for this particular area? But the Black History Framework will look different depending on where you are. In a district that doesn't have black population, mm. how do they approach it? Well, um, pretty similar to, you know, how they approach it in um, school districts that have a large black population, right? Um, so what I tell people through my Black History Framework is that, all right, when we begin to start developing black history, there's eight principles that we need to consider. Number one, we need to consider that black history should be taught through po- power, oppression, and anti-blackness, right? Number two, teaching black history through black agency, right? So how did we fight against those aspects of oppression? Teaching about the African diaspora is principle three, right? How are we connected to black people around the globe? Principle four is this conception of black emotions, right? We teach about black emotionality because it's extremely important for us to understand the different emotions, fear, 
anger, joy, um, um, and and all these human emotions. Principle five deals with black identities, right? So we should not just focus on black males who are heterosexual, who are Christian, who are able-bodied. We need to focus on various different identities. Principle six is probably the most controversial black historical contention. Um, that is when we develop black history, sometimes we're too perfect when we develop that particular curriculum. And that's probably the most controversial between different school districts. Principle six is teaching history from below social history. Let's, yeah. Before we move to number six, let's talk more about that. Okay. What do you mean when you say too perfect? Black people are perfect, right? They, they, they did no wrong, right? All they were were um, victims of white oppression, right? And they fought or they got beat and, oh, oh, woe is me type of history, right? But in many ways, contention, what it does, it brings out this concept of, um, first of all, black people are different, right? They have different ideologies. They differ, what? Any one population is into monoliths? <laughs> exactly, Surely you're... exactly, right? Yeah. You know, so so you have that particular aspect. And then you also focus on, well, black people have been oppressive, right, in various different ways, right? And we can have conversations about why different African ethnic groups sold other African ethnic groups into, you know, slavery or traded them with, with Europeans. We can have that conversation, which is a very important one. But the reality is they did. Right. You know, um, um, in many different you know respects, um, we can have the conversation about Booker T. Washington, and W. E. Du Bois. But the fact is, Washington did great by creating um, black schools. But then also the communist, um, you know, approach to those schools may have hindered black progress in many different ways. Right. So so those those contentious efforts are very important because if we don't teach it, we're 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 doing the same thing that we complain that traditional history does is that we dehumanize black people in those perspectives. I, I don't want to dwell on the conflict, but I think it's interesting because in literature, mm -hmm. I mean, and think of your favorite, your favorite drama on TV, mm -hmm. the character that has a lot of conflict, the character that is not cookie cutter, is the one you're really going to lean in and watch. Um, in literature, the same thing. Characters are real when they include that kind of conflict. And I'm glad you said real. Right. Dr. Ashley Woodson wrote a piece on how how adolescents view black history and when they and, and they focused on the civil rights movement. And what she found was that the students told the teachers, I'm not perfect like Martin Luther King Jr. Right. I'm not perfect like all these civil rights activists. So how can I be a change agent? Right. I'm not religious. Right. Yeah. I don't speak yeah. like him. Right. You know, I don't do, you know, what I mean? so, so we're, we're, we're creating these unattainable figures and saying that they're historically important. And then students are sitting back and they're like, I'm not like that person. My parent, my family, I'm not middle class. Right. I'm not rich. Right. So how can I be a change agent? And so, so that's where that contention part lies that um, making historical figures regular is extremely important because kids are regular. All right, now, now the rest of the list. Teaching social histories, right? Um, m most times we teach from the top down, right? But we don't teach from the bottom up. The way in which you learn history is through regular people, right? So these social histories are extremely important. And then the last one is about teaching black futures. And when we think about um, futurism, all futurism is, is what would society look like if white people just left black people alone? 
right? Mm, um, let me think about that. <laughs> wow. Because when when you go through history, for people that know their history, whenever there's a progress of blackness, it seems like there's always been a pushback for their success, right? Um, you, you know, so 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 futurism is that, but. Most importantly, where futurism is, is the concept of learning history and using that knowledge of history to change the, change the present and change the future. Where we give students the permission to think differently about the future. Because again, remember that concept, history is about citizenship and history is about um, 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 these people being decision makers once they leave school. This is important because once they become decision makers, and if they really believe in democracy and improving democracy and making democracy more equ equitable, one of the biggest excuses as adults we give children when they ask the question, well, why is this the way it is, is we always say, because it is. It's just mm -hmm. the way it's going. But we don't give them permission to dream about the future. Every great invention was a dream at one time. Every great government official was a dream at one time, right? And we don't allow our kids to dream. So when they get into that decision-making role and they want to make the world more equitable, guess what? They've already did it. They just now have to apply it. And that's what, what black futures through black history is. In all of this, to what degree does the media play a role. And by media, I don't mean journalism. I don't mean newscasts. Granted, that's part of what shapes our narrative, sure. But I'm talking movies. I'm talking books. Mm -hmm. I'm talking popular culture. I'm talking, I don't know, social media. Media as broadly as you can define it. That's an excellent question. And and when you actually, the first thing that came to mind, there there was some movie or something um, about the kings of Egypt or something like that. And the cast was all white. Right. Mm. <laughs> and, and 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 then my mind goes to like the uproar if there's some type of um, fantasy movie based on a book and the character is black in the movie, but it's supposed to be white in the book and people go crazy about that. Right. Uh, media is uh, very important in, in in helping us shape. I think people go a little bit overboard. Right. Because some things are about entertainment. Right. But if 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 something based on media is supposed to be based on history, it needs to be as close as possible. But media is is extremely important in the way in which it shapes our racial beliefs. Part of the reason I'm asking is I'm thinking of the popularity, including the specific popularity among black kids, mm -hmm. of the Black Panther series. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What made Black Panther um, really intriguing was the concept of that, that person being a superhero. But what they did within Black Panther and connecting it to a fictional African, you know, um, you know, country, I think was amazing, right? From from um, the clothing to kind of the cultural, you know, traditions. Be which, because they created a culture out of whole cloth. That's what futurism is, right? Wakanda is, you know, <clears throat> how would society look if they were never interfered with colonization? Right. You know, kind of saying we are never um, allowed to be the geniuses that, you know, we are to develop these particular societies. It's, but, yeah. it's OK to dream is yeah. what you're saying. Sure. It's OK to dream because everyone dreams and sometimes those dreams become reality. Right. All right. My last question, the last area I wanted to get into is what don't we know? Is there a person or an event or something out there? 
that needs more attention to be put on the same level as perhaps a Tubman? I think Fannie Lou Haber, Haber from Mississippi, civil rights activist from Mississippi, is important because her aesthetic goes against what we feel are civil rights activists, right? Most of our civil rights activists that we study, they believe in the concept of nonviolence, right? They're middle class, they're dressed in suits and hats, and they're educated, et cetera, et cetera. Where we have, you know, this lady from Mississippi who wasn't middle class, right? Uh, who didn't didn't quote unquote speak very articulate, right? Although I think she spoke really articulate, right? Um, those are kind of the types of individuals I think we should kind of um, add into kind of the narratives just to give students an understanding that all people of all walks of life participated and can make a different difference. The last thing I have to touch on, and uh, and I've witnessed some of this, I think it's worthy of of discussion. Occasional Saturdays, you hold what's called the Black History Nerds Saturday School. Mm -hmm. I just love the idea of Black History Nerds. Uh I think that puts it in a completely different context. Talk to me about what that is, who's in it, and what do they learn? Yeah, so we just some um, nerds on a Saturday learning about black history, right? You, you have to be a nerd to get up on Saturday. Uh, <laughs> to see. And I'm the HNIC, right, the head nerd in charge. We're just some, you know, people, you know, waking up on Saturday morning, grabbing coffee and sitting down on our computers and, and just learning and taking notes and asking oh, questions. Who, who attends? Like, so we have a very diverse uh, group group of people that, um, you know, attend all different racialized, um, you know, categories, all different educational levels, um, teachers, um, other what I would call community educators, those who may not have a teacher's license, but they teach in the communities, um, you know, uh, professors, uh, kids, right, actually attend as well. Uh, I don't know if they're forced by their parents to attend, but, but there are some kids that are attending on Saturday morning, too. So we just have a diverse array of people that, that attends. If people need more information about any of this, the classes or just the kind of stuff that you put forth uh, from the the UB Center, how do they get in touch? They can just, um, you know, Google um, UB Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy, and our webpage will will, um, pop up. Dr. King, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Dr. LeGarrett King is the director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University of Buffalo. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Depot. Thanks for listening.